All right. If you would, then turn in your Bibles to Psalm 16. And once you have found Psalm 16, uh, if you could please once again stand and join me for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 16, a mitkam of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. And I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You guys can be seated. So, um, Psalm uh, 16 is where we find ourselves this week, once again in our Summer in the Psalms. And this one is uh, titled, A Sure Hope. The title of this one is A Sure Hope. And some of the language in this psalm might be familiar to you. And if you maybe picked up on verses 8, 9, 10, and 11 uh, being familiar verses, uh, and you may be asking yourself why, uh, we will cover that when we get there. It's actually quoted and expounded in the New Testament by Peter uh, when he preaches on the day of Pentecost. But we'll get to that when we get there. And uh, at first, we want to try to understand what is Psalm 16's purpose? What is it communicating to its audience? And so what are the clues that we get in the text that tell us about this sure hope that we have? And uh, the first clue that we get is really the first line of the psalm. And we're told it's a, mikt, it's a miktum of David. Now, that term right there is a term that very few people understand. Uh, in Psalms, these are pretty frequent. You'll hear of uh, maskals of David or uh, various musical terms, and that's because, remember, the Psalms are a musical book. And sometimes that gives us an indication as to what we can expect, whether this is a psalm of mourning or a psalm of glorifying God or or what have you. But uh, in this case, the term is so unclear that we're not really told much about what to expect from the term itself. And so most people will say that this is simply a term of a kind of musical, uh, let's say a hymn or a poem or something like that, that was familiar to the people, and so it might have brought to mind a certain cadence or a certain rhythm or a certain expected pattern. Just like how we have the category of poetry uh, that we understand, but we also know there's a difference between end rhyme poetry and haikus and, uh, and um, uh, other, other forms of poems like that. So a mitkum is a, is a kind of psalm, uh, but they're not exactly sure exactly what kind of uh, poetry style it drew from. Uh, but the, the clue in that line is more specific than that, that unfamiliar phrase to us, but we're told it's a psalm of David. And a psalm of David uh, could mean one of two things. It could mean that it's a psalm that David wrote himself, or a psalm that is speaking about David, 
And more often than not, it's a psalm that David himself wrote, meaning it's a psalm produced by David, in this case, a mictum produced by David. And so with that in mind, uh, all of what this psalm speaks about, we can think through how David, the author of the psalm, would have intended his audience to hear it. Remember, David uh, was a king. Uh, he was first a boy who grew up uh, outside of the kingdom and then eventually would ascend to the throne, face all kinds of adversity in his life. And so knowing who the author is gives us some clue as to what message he might bring forth. Uh, just as we know when uh, a New Testament letter is written from Paul, we know that because we know about Paul and, and who he is and uh, his, his whole life of theology and his ministry and his mission trips uh, in the book of Acts, we know that that somewhat informs his heart posture when he's writing the letter to the churches. And so knowing who the author is is very helpful for us to understand what he might write about. Now, the, this psalm is actually fairly straightforward. So there's actually, uh, as, as we were reading it, you might have picked up on a, a very straightforward understanding of the psalm. And so uh, I just want to very quickly uh, rehash some of those pieces that are put forth very plainly in the text. The first thing you see is the request right away in verse 1 where he says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Now, if I was to pull that line out and read it out loud to you, you'd have a hard time placing it uh, in any one particular psalm because almost a, a great many psalms have that same kind of language with a request of perseverance, a request to be saved, um, and uh, maybe an affirmation that it is God and God alone in whom the psalmist takes refuge. You might uh, bring forth to your mind uh, the language of, I lift my eyes up to the hills from where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Language that uh, essentially enthrones God and puts uh, a confidence or a trust in him. And uh, no different than any of those other Psalms, uh, here David writes, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Now that shouldn't surprise us because remember, knowing David's life, there's many occasions on which he could have written uh, that line and that line applied to him because he was very often on the run and often in need of God's persevering work to save him. And then he says in verse two, uh, you'll notice it's grouped there with verse one. He says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord and I have no good apart from you. Now to understand the play on words that David is using there, uh, and I point this out often, but I like pointing it out when it's present in the text. Uh, in verse 2, you'll notice two uses of the word Lord. One of them is Lord, all caps. The other is Lord, capital L, and then lowercase o-r-d. And in your English translation of the Bible, that capital Lord uh, and then the lowercase Lord uh, is the difference or distinction of two different titles to refer to God. One is his divine name, Yahweh, and some translations have Yahweh spelled out there. But uh, the other word Lord is the term for uh, Lord as we would use the term, as in ruler or master or king over me. And that is the Hebrew word Adonai, as it's commonly referred to. So what David is saying is not, uh, Lord, you are my Lord. He's saying Yahweh, identifying God who's revealed himself to the Jewish people, saying that Yahweh is my master. That Lord is my Lord. So he's, the English translation loses some of that, but in, in paying attention to the text, we can pick back up on that. So he's not, he's not saying that uh, Baal is my Lord or whatever God comes to mind when I say the word God is my Lord. He's specifically saying that this one God who's revealed himself to the Jewish people in this very narrow kind of way, that's the person who is my master and my king. And in that, we understand that if, if, we, if we're to survey the Psalms and what David writes, it's very important to note that nowhere in the text 
does David want to be unclear about who he's putting his confidence in? He's not just saying that it's good meditatively or therapeutically to generally believe in a higher power and have that higher power be the one who morally commands you around. He, he, he's asserting in this language that having a specific God in mind and having the correct God in mind is the, the, hinge, uh, the hinge point of making that next statement. If you have the wrong uh, God that you identify as master, you're going to, it doesn't matter that you have that God as master, they will be a false God and therefore lead you astray. And he's going to make that clear later in this verse as well, or later in this psalm. But I think it's important to point that out because so often today in our pluralistic culture, we think uh, when we have conversations with people and they, can, uh, they talk about themselves as being generally spiritual or saying that they do have a God or a higher power that they believe in, or perhaps they even say that they believe in God, referring to the same way we would use the term God, um, but then their understanding of who that God is and what that God is like is so different and so drastically altered from how we understand God that it's almost as they, they could be referring to a different deity entirely. Um, and so it's important not only that we say that we believe in God, but we know who that God is and what he's like. And in this case, when David says the term Yahweh, he's narrowed that terminology down for his audience to the one who's revealed himself in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So like I said, knowing who the author is and who he's writing to, when he says Yahweh is my God, he's very narrowly now focused it into the one who gave the Ten Commandments, the one who delivered his people in the Exodus, the one who was with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's narrowed his scope to a very clear understanding of who this God is. David is being very clear to his audience about who he is trusting in, who is his refuge, as he said earlier. And he says that God, Yahweh, uh, apart from him, there is no good that he has. Now, to understand all of what he means in that, he's actually going to explain that later in the psalm. So we'll keep moving along. But in verse 3, he then uh, makes almost like a totally drastic and altered statement from the earlier statement. He says, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Now, it seems rather strange for him to almost deviate from his previous train of thought and make this one statement. And the statement essentially says, the saints in the land, which refers to the holy ones who live on earth. So what he's referring to are the people who are morally upright, likely those who are following and obedient to Yahweh, who he just identified. He's saying those people, the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, and, and in them is all my delight. Now what he's, he's saying there is not actually altogether different from his previous train of thought, because what he's about to go into is those who he does not delight in. And so he's, he's, if you follow the train of thought, first and foremost, he says God is his refuge, that God is his master. And then he deviates and he says, the saints of the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Now, why might he be saying that the saints of the land are his delight if he just said that God is his only refuge and his only, uh, he has no good apart from God? Well, those who are the saints in the land are considered saintly or holy in relation to their obedience or lack thereof to God. And so if these saints in the land, David is referring to people who not only also share in the love of God, but also share in obedience to him, share in faithfulness to him, share in a passion for him. And he's saying these people out in the land, I can take great delight in, not because of them themselves, not because of their namesake, not because of who they are, but because they emulate and they share in a faith and they share in a, a value system that is so close to mine that I can delight in their model and their excellencies. 
Now we can relate to that as well because we know what it is to have someone who shares a common faith with us and who when they speak and they talk about their faith experience or their walk with the Lord, that in our hearts we too would be encouraged by that. That's the uh, koinonia fellowship in the New Testament that we are so often told of that it's important for us to not only be on, our, on an island with God, and if that's what it takes, that's what it takes, but often in God's grace, he gives us a great many people who we can stand alongside with, who share faith with us, and whom we can look to and say, we actually delight in their companionship. We delight in their example. We delight in sharing our burdens with them and delighting, as it were, in their companionship looking at them and favorably saying we can delight in who they are because we're seeing them and we're seeing the God who gave them to us and the God whom they also serve and worship. It's the encouragement of people who God gives us as uh, those who we can see on earth to delight in. And then he is going to now contrast that and he's going to kind of come back to his train of thought. And then he says, verse 4, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their name on my lips. Now it becomes a little bit more clear why he made his first segue in verse 3, because he's giving an example of those in the land that he sees that are faithful to Yahweh. He says he delights in them. And then he's going to put a different group out on display, those who run after other gods. And he's going to say those are people whose sorrows will multiply. And the inference is I'm going to stay away from them. I'm not going to delight in them. And furthermore, I'm not going to pour out blood offerings, meaning I'm not going to partake in their worship. I'm not going to partake in their sacrifice. I'm not even going to take the names of those false gods on my lips. So there's two groups of people out in the land. There's David who talks about Yahweh whom he serves. And then he says, there's one group of people that follows Yahweh. I delight in that group of people. And there's another group of people that worships all these false gods in all these false ways. And I, I won't even worship with them. I won't even associate with them. I won't even ceremonially, ceremonially pour out blood offerings with them. I'm not even going to take the names of those false gods on my lips. So he's setting out two kind of different groups of people in the land. And then to underscore why it's important that he's now made this drastic and almost seemingly harsh distinction, he's going to clarify why he doesn't want to take the name of these false gods on his lips, why he doesn't want to participate in false worship. And he says, verse 5, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. Notice again, personal name for God. Yahweh is my chosen portion. Yahweh is my cup. And why is this an encouragement to him? Because of the following line, you, now he's talking almost personally with Yahweh, you hold my lot. And that term lot is one we even would refer to today to refer to someone who has good or bad lots or someone who has good or bad chance or providence possibly. And you notice in the very next line, he's going to clarify what it means for Yahweh to hold his lot. He says in verse 6, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. He's drawing poetically on language that's used in the, in the law, the Torah, to talk about uh, the, the lines being drawn as the boundary lines of the people of Israel. So in the, in the original text, the lines is actually talking about the measuring lines, which is how when they would go into the promised land, they decided between where does the tribe of Dan go, where does the tribe of Asher go, where does Naphtali go, where do, we, where do we divide all these people up, where do they go? And God actually, for very long periods of time in the Torah, spells out exactly where the boundary runs to and which tribe gets which land and to what river does it go and how far south does it run. And if you want to read that, you can. But in, in those cases, they're drawing out the lines or the plots of inheritance for the different tribes. 
And what David is, is drawing from is this imagery of the inheritance, the promised land. Remember, these are the people who would, would know that context and know that imagery. And he says that the Lord is my chosen portion and cup. He holds my lot. And that that lot that God holds is one that has fallen for me in a pleasant place. These lines, this inheritance that I've been given falls in a pleasant place. And then in, he's going to underscore that again by repeating it. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Now, all of what that means is not necessarily clear. He's probably drawing on the context of the blessings of God and the faithfulness of someone who follows God. But it's nevertheless clear that in reflecting on those blessings, which he's kind of alluding to by his context and his audience and who he's writing to, he's not explicitly saying it. He's saying this inheritance is beautiful. Whatever inheritance he's talking about, he's saying that is a beautiful inheritance. And then he's going to partially spell out what is kind of all included in that inheritance. What does it mean to have a beautiful inheritance and what's all uh, grouped together with that? In verse 7, he says, the first part of inheritance, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night, my heart also instructs me. So the first thing that's kind of included in this blessing that you get as a follower of God, that you get uh, as almost part of knowing God, is you get sound, solid counsel. I bless Yahweh who gives me counsel. Now it could be asked, how does David receive counsel from God? How is it that he would receive wisdom and insight from God? How is he getting that? Uh, and is that in any way different than how we get it? Well, we can partially know in scripture that it is true that David would, uh, in some ways, he would play music. And if you read First uh, and Second Samuel, you kind of pick up on this idea that David, when he plays music, this somehow soothes Saul's spirit. And sometimes David, when he would play music, this would be a time where people would prophesy. So the spirit of the Lord is working in David's life and in his kingdom to where sometimes music would kind of set the stage for prophecy or a word from the Lord to be delivered. And so in some sense, he's saying he blessed the Lord who gives him counsel. And in this case, counsel that comes kind of in a timely manner. Other ways in which he would get counsel from God is from uh, his personal study of the words of God. One of the things that the kings had the uh, obligation to do was to be intimately familiar with the Torah. They had to actually, as it says in, in one place, they had to write it out by hand themselves, write a copy of the law for themselves, just so that they could know it, so they could imbibe this law for themselves. And so in doing that, in writing out the commandments of God, in writing out his statutes, in writing out his uh, beautiful revelation, he is getting counsel from God, how he should act in a legal matter or a legal dispute, right? The, the Levitical laws that give him wise counsel as to what is a just form of punishment, what is an unjust form of punishment, what is a wise use of money, what is an unwise use of money, what is faithful obedience to God look like, and what is unfaithful uh, to God. He even gets counsel in that way in how to raise a family, right? Uh, in Deuteronomy, we're told that uh, not only should we believe that God is one, but we should also raise our children in that way. And so he's getting all kinds of wisdom from God. He's getting sound, good, solidified counsel in the first five books of Scripture. And I think often, uh, thinking about the day and age that we live in, we so often read the blessings and the wonderful gifts that we have in the New Testament, and we get very good sound counsel from there. And often we look at the first half of the Bible as things that we might have to get through or we kind of have to deal with, but is really for a bygone age and a bygone people and we almost ignore the counsel that's present in those texts. And David, reflecting on the counsel that he gets, he's probably exclusively referring to those texts. It's very unlikely that he would have had the Isaiah, you know, those are people who come after his period of time. 
The Psalter is probably not even assembled yet, right? He, unless he's written some and they're kind of already in circulation. But he certainly doesn't have all 150. He certainly doesn't have many of the things that we have uh, present. So he might have a couple of copies of the historical books and the Torah. And he's saying this, for him, is a source of sound counsel. It's one of the ways in which he would gain counsel from God. And then he says an interesting phrase. He says, in the night also, my heart instructs me. And when he says this, there's uh, what people would talk about as the secret or the private instruction that we gain from God. And this is something the Puritans refer to as the inward witness or the inward testimony of the Holy Spirit to our hearts. And they would talk about this in, in aspects of uh, theology such as assurance of faith. They would say that uh, you could know that you have salvation, you could know that you have a real genuine faith, that you have been sealed, if the, if the Holy Spirit inwardly to your own heart witnesses and confirms that you indeed do have faith. This is something that uh, David is now referring to as his own heart instructing him. And so, no doubt, it's not his sinful heart that he's referring to. It's he talking about in Psalm 51 that he is led astray and in, in death was he conceived. He's not talking about that aspect of his nature. He's talking instead about the, the part, uh, the secret witness of the Holy Spirit who's indwelt him, who's sitting on him. That part of him instructs him in sound ways. And that Holy Spirit, just like in the New Testament, does not in any way, shape, or form contradict the testimony of the Word of God, which he would have had codified and written down uh, in, as it were, on pen and paper or chisel and stone or however they would have recorded it. It's not, it's not in any way contradictory there. And in many senses, it only serves to underscore and to confirm to him what's already been laid out. There's, it's very unlikely that he has new or private or secret revelation there. And we know that because many times when he gets that kind of revelation, he actually writes it down because David was a prophet and he would write things down like this. And so he's saying that the Lord gives him counsel and also the Lord instructs him into his inward heart and as it were, affirms and testifies to this. Now you might be saying that that's a strange thing for David to say, but actually when you get to uh, the end of the Gospel of Luke and as you're a Theophilus reading the Gospel of Luke, you've kind of gotten to this point and then Jesus comes to these disciples on the road to Emmaus and he talks about how in Moses and all of the scriptures he preaches about himself. And the disciples reflecting on that conversation with Jesus say, did not our hearts burn within us as he spoke the scriptures? And in that way, their inward heart was instructing them or as it were, confirming what Jesus was verbally saying to them. It wasn't just that Jesus was instructing them in that moment, but the Holy Spirit was burning and searing into their hearts the truth of what was being spoken. Just as when you hear good, solid teaching of the word, you could probably relate to the experience of having your heart sing with joy as to hearing God's truth proclaimed. That is not your natural heart singing with joy. That is the spirit burning in the truth of that word into your soul. It's the inward instruction of the spirit. And David himself shares in that, and he's actually saying that in the night his heart instructs him, probably uh, meditating on God's word as he says day and night. And as that is going on, his inward heart is instructing him and burning that deeper into his, his heart. And then verse 8, he's going to confirm kind of what we've been suspicious of earlier, that he's reading God's word. He says, verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. So how does David set the Lord always before him? Well, he doesn't do so just in name only. In fact, for a Jewish person to do so in name only would have been completely unheard of, right? Think about his audience. When he says he's setting the Lord before him, he's talking about what Deuteronomy talks about when it says the Lord should be on your forehead and on your right hand. 
that this should be the obsession of your work and the obsession of your thought life, that you meditate on God and you set his ways always before you. That this is almost in Psalm 119 says, the Lord is, uh, uh, his word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That the Lord is always before me, meaning he's my obsession, he's my meditation, he is my, uh, my thought, he is the, the whole lens into which I see life through. The Lord is always before me. And in David's reflection, this would probably also include him being the king, wanting to be a faithful king, and now reflecting on God being always before him. And David often refers to God as, you know, the one true leader of Israel. And so David, as he's asking the question, how do I soundly judge my people? How do I lead them in battle? How do I uh, settle disputes in peace matters? He has to do that from the posture of God being uh, objective reality for him to live by. And I think this is a, uh, something that we can think of as well because many of us uh, leave Sunday and we go to work Monday through Friday and often, unless we are consciously framing our lives into uh, that we are Christians living out our work for the kingdom, it's very difficult for us to, in our daily jobs, be reminded of God. In fact, the busyness of life often strips our mind away from God and takes him away from being before us and, and actually he's the furthest thing from our mind. And maybe, you know, by Thursday morning we wake up and we remember we have small group and so we got to remember God today and, and meditate on him today. But David is saying as a, res as a resolution, God is before me always. As many uh, in the New Testament, Paul would say, you know, pray without ceasing. That there's this posture of continuity with God. There's this posture of a continuing life-on-life -life experience that goes beyond just the reading of Scripture. It goes beyond just being on your knees in prayer. It's this general posture of God is his utmost reality through which all of his life is essentially lived out of. And then he's saying, if the Lord is before him, because of this, uh, I will not be shaken. Because God is my right hand, I will not be shaken. What it means for God to be his right hand is God is his strength. God is his uh, source of vitality. God is the thing that gets him up and, and keeps him peacefully. And God is the thing that walks with him in life. Now again, if you hear me say just those last few lines, you might be saying, well, I thought it was not just this general spirituality and this general uh, kind of uh, good feelings and vibes that we get from some deity out there who's uh, kind of for us and with us. And today, in today's world, uh, when people talk about, you know, God is, God is with me and, you know, whatever I do, God does with me, uh, there's a lot of times in which we need to clarify what exactly is meant by those kinds of statements. But remember, David has so far underscored who he's talking about personally as Yahweh. He's so far underscored God being his chosen portion, all of these good things being an inheritance from God. And that there's a difference he, in his mind between the false gods and what they offer and the one true God and what he offers. And so David is saying because of the one true God and his promises, the Lord is my right hand, I will not be shaken. So he's not taking this and saying somehow that he is going to have a prosperous and wonderful life. He's simply saying that all the promises that God has laid out in his word are things that he can be sure of because God is his right hand. God will not allow him to be shaken. And in Deuteronomy, it actually says, uh, if you are a faithful Israelite, if you follow in the, in the covenants of God, he will not let your feet slip. He will not let your way be shaken. And so David is simply actually preaching or uh, regurgitating information that he's previously read and digested in his meditations. And then he goes to say, uh, on the basis of all these things, therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. So notice now a distinction in David's mind between his, his internal heart and his flesh. 
And even uh, in the Western world today, we kind of maintain this kind of distinction between our bodies and our minds or, uh, or our hearts and our, uh, our bodies. This idea that there's like the emotional, the uh, spiritual side of him that is gladdened. And then he says, out of the result of this, my whole being rejoices. And then my flesh also dwells secure. So he's kind of hitting all parts of his person saying all of it is confirmed as a testimony of God uh, being faithful to him. And he almost rests securely in his whole being as a result of these things. And notice, uh, you know, it's, it's information that then his heart follows in. So he preaches information to himself. His heart is glad as a result of that information. His whole being rejoices from that information. And, and, and finally, his physical body, his flesh, he says, dwells securely. Now, I think that's a great way for us to think through uh, the, the life of faith. That faith is not an unreasonable thing. Faith is something that our mind has to first ascend to, but it can't stop at our mind because if it stops at our minds, it doesn't get to our hearts and we can't be glad. So it has to get through to our minds. And then from our minds, it flows to our hearts and causes us to be glad. And that gladness, both between mind and heart, testify to our whole being to confirm the joy that is present. And in that, we can rest that our bodies will one day also dwell securely. That is the same way that David goes about thinking through these things. He says, his heart is glad, his whole being rejoices, and his flesh then also dwells securely. And why then does he underscore this line, his flesh dwells securely? It seems again a little out of place. But if you read the next line, he clarifies what he's saying. He says, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Now, here is an interesting line and much debate uh, over the last couple thousand years of church history has tried to understand the difference between the Jewish and the Christian interpretation of these verses. In fact, if you uh, were so inclined and you wanted to get into the original text, there is a difference between what we would call the Greek or the Christian tradition of the handed down Old Testament and the Hebrew or the Masoretic text handed down. And at this point of interpretation, the rabbis and the Hebrew texts alter or augment the language somewhat from what the Greek texts say, and they alter it in some way to where the rabbis essentially interpret this verse to say that David is saying he will not die. And David, you know, couldn't possibly have meant that, and so this is not really applying uh, in that sense to David, that he's simply saying God rescued him at this point in time from a particular ailment or a particular enemy, and in that way, David is referring to not his entire life not seeing corruption, but at that particular moment, from that particular circumstance, he was rescued. Just like he was rescued from Saul or rescued from um, his, uh, his, his many opponents that he faced in life. And then the Christian tradition would interpret this verse very differently in light of the New Testament that we have, but we'll get there. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, we should probably just go there now because I've been alluding to it the whole time. Um, so to understand, uh, let's say, the tension at play between the rabbi interpretation and the Christian interpretation, you'll have to flip with me in your Bibles to a part of the New Testament in Acts chapter 2. And we're just going to look at a couple of verses, but it's in a larger sermon that's preached in Acts chapter 2. And again, context is so important for understanding what is being said and why it's being said. So Acts chapter 2 and uh, verse 25 is where the quotation starts. But just to fill you in on the preceding background, Jesus has ascended to heaven. The apostles were told to wait for the Holy Spirit. And right before this moment has happened, the Holy Spirit has fallen on the apostles. And he is now, and now they're preaching and they're prophesying. And the first thing that happens is people reject this prophecy. And they say that this is nothing but a bunch of drunk people talking. 
And then Peter launches into one of the most famous sermons in the New Testament. And he first starts by quoting Joel, an Old Testament prophet, and saying that we are now in those last days because the Holy Spirit has fallen and all people are prophesying, the sons and the daughters, they're all prophesying. And then he's going to explain, let's say, the why behind all of, the, the, all of what he's saying right now. He's saying, we're in the last days, just like Joel said. And then he's talking uh, to them about Jesus of Nazareth. So right before he quotes uh, these verses that we just read in Psalm uh, 16, he says, verse 22, he, remember his audience is super important for who he's talking to. Men of Israel hear these words. So he's talking to the Israelites specifically, not to all of the people that are there, because remember there's many different kinds of people there in Jerusalem. It says, men of Israel hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now, it's important to understand what Peter is arguing. What Peter is not arguing is that the verses he's about to quote prove that Jesus was resurrected from the grave. That's actually to flip the logic. What, what Peter is saying is, Jesus of Nazareth, we know he was crucified. We know you crucified him by the Romans. Those are all factual statements. God raised him up loosening him the pangs of death. Peter is treating the resurrection as a, a reality. It's not something that he's arguing for. He's saying that actually happened. What he's going to argue is that because Jesus resurrected from the grave, that proves that he was the Messiah. He's not disputing with them whether or not Jesus resurrected. For him, it's an assumed fact. So he's not going to argue from these verses that Jesus must have gotten out of the grave. He's saying Jesus did get out of the grave, and because he got out of the grave... Remember what David said about the Messiah. He says, now I'm going to quote from uh, verse 25. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, and I may not be shaken. You might notice the language difference so far. That's the difference between the Greek to English translation of the Old Testament and the Hebrew to English translation that we were just reading. Verse 26, therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced and my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. That verse 28 is the verse that we just haven't gotten to yet in Psalm 16. Now Peter quotes this, and notice what he says in the following verses. Verse 29, he says this to interpret what he just read. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. So he's confirming essentially that this could not have possibly been applied to David because David actually did see corruption. David was killed, he died, he's still dead. Verse 30, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. And he's saying, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So notice what David is arguing. He's, or notice what Peter's arguing that David was prophesying about. Peter says, David was prophesying, and in David's prophecy, David was prophesying, 
not about Jesus. David was prophesying about the Christ. And the, and the important distinction there is that all of the Old Testament saints who would have read Deuteronomy would have expected a coming Christ who was one day to save the people, as we would call him the Messiah. That's the Aramaic term for the Christ. So the Christ is a figure talked about all over the Old Testament. He was not known in the Old Testament by the name Jesus. In fact, Jesus in his earthly ministry does all of his earthly ministry and much of the gospels are written not to prove that Jesus was real, but to prove that Jesus was Christ. There's a difference. The liberal scholars and everyone who studies a history of any kind says Jesus of Nazareth was a real person. No one who studies history and is uh, academically acclaimed would, have to, would be able to deny that. He's a real historical person. The Gospels don't even argue that he's a real historical person. They just assume it. Their whole argument is that Jesus was Christ. So what Peter is arguing is that the Christ, whom David spoke about in Psalm 16, matches description with what Jesus has just done, remember, a couple of days ago. So his argument isn't that, hey, remember David said this, and look, Jesus did this, and Jesus must have done this, or else that would be invalid. What he's saying is, we know Jesus did this. David is prophesying about the Christ. Jesus is the Christ, because Jesus did what David prophesied the Christ would do. And so uh, understanding that, I think, helps us to understand maybe a little bit more about Psalm 16, and we're going to put it all back together, because so far I've been talking about just really from the lens of David speaking. But as we see now, it's a prophecy about the Christ. And in verse 11 of this prophecy, the, the closing verse, he says this, You make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now this language is wonderful language. And the language is essentially this, you make known to me the path of life, meaning you make known to me eternal life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy, meaning presence with God, with Yahweh. And so that line we've already read. And now the question is, okay, how do we put all of Psalm 16 together, right? We were talking about it's from David, David wrote it. But all of those lines that we were reading as we got uh, through the psalm seem to apply pretty much directly to David, right? They all seem to be things that plausibly could have been done with him and things that David in other places does say. He says, preserve me, I take refuge in you. There's no good apart from you. You're my inheritance. You give me counsel, you instruct me. This seems to be applying to a human person, not to anyone who's divine, right? How, what would a divine person have to do with needing to take refuge in God? He is God. What would a divine person need uh, an inheritance for? He is God. He possesses all things. How do, how do we put all that together? So the way the rabbis would interpret this, the way that the, they would interpret it to this day, is to say that this is Jewish wisdom poetry that talks about the path to the life with God that God blesses. And so by the time you get to the end of it, in verse 11, it says, you make known to me the path of life. What is being argued is that uh, if you trust God, if you take refuge in him, if you study his word, if you do what it says, he'll lead you to a good, happy, and blessed life. And that is the understanding of Psalm 16. But what a Christian says when we read Psalm 16 is that to say that the path of life, the fullness of joy, the pleasures forevermore is only referring to this life and this life alone is missing the weight of what those verses are talking about. In fact, Peter's argument is that if you simply say that David didn't see corruption because he was saved at one moment in time, you've missed it. Because David did in fact see corruption, and so this verse cannot apply to David. By the strength of the language, it cannot apply to David. 
So it has to be talking about somebody else. And now the question is, well, how could this possibly be talking about the Christ? Or as we're, since we know who the Christ is by name, how does this talk about Jesus? Well, Jesus prayed and communed with God in all of these ways as the verse laid out. Just to revisit them, Jesus, being a man, a true man, had to pray as a true man does for preser preservation and refuge. When he is on earth, he is not divine and somehow playing the game of life as a human. He's really a man relying on the Holy Spirit and being faithful to God his Father. And so he would often have to say things like, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Imagine him in the wilderness being tempted by Satan and those temptations being real fleshly temptations that were offered to him. He's not just coasting through that temptation. He's battling and winning the temptation, relying on the Spirit. Jesus uh, would say to Yahweh, you are my Lord and I have no good apart from you. Now that's strange, but remember, Jesus is both truly man and truly God, which means he can say this in his humanity because his Lord is, in tru is truly the Godhead. He's the faithful one, the one who all men should have been. Verse 3, as for the saints in the land, they are excellent ones. He's rejoicing and delighting in people who follow God. He's running away from the false gods, as verse 4 spells out. And then he says this, Yahweh is his chosen portion and his cup. He holds my lot. Now this is interesting because remember, David, or sorry, Jesus is also Yahweh, right? In his humanity now he speaks and says that his chosen portion is not what the devil offers him. His chosen portion is not kingdom and dominion of this world in an unrighteous way. His chosen portion is Yahweh. And that's interesting because when he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, if this cup were to pass from me, take it, take it away from me. But if not, I will drink the cup. And otherwise in scripture, we're told that it is for the joy that is set before him that he endures the cross. That his portion and his cup, his fullness of joy, is on the other side of Golgotha. And so he very much is relying on God being his chosen portion, not righteousness with the Pharisees, not righteousness according to Caesar and Pilate. His chosen portion and his cup was God. And so he bears the sin of the world, and he is doing that because he is saying in verse 6, I have a beautiful inheritance. Now who is Jesus' inheritance? It's his bride, it's the church. It's all of the dominion of this world. Jesus gets to sit on the throne only after he's purchased his bride unto himself and then he sits on the throne and then he waits for his betrothal marriage supper of the lamb to be wed with her. And he's waiting for his bride, but his inheritance is secured at the cross. And then he says, you know, he gets counsel from the Lord that he has an inward heart that instructs him in the night as well. Jesus often would stay up in the night praying and uh, seeking God and seeking his counsel. And that refers then to God the Father, right? Because Jesus also is God. Verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me. Think about his whole earthly ministry, his whole life on this earth. Forsaking the world, denying temptation, and pursuing the righteous way that God set before him. Because God is his strength, God is not going to let him be shaken. And he says, therefore, in reflecting on this, my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my flesh also dwells secure. Now this is where it becomes more clear because this can't refer to David. Jesus is saying his heart is glad, his whole being rejoices because he's been faithful, because he's sought God, because he's put his way before him. He believes that when he goes to the cross, 
his flesh dwells secure. He believes that he will not see corruption. He believes that his soul will not be abandoned to Sheol. He does not go to the cross as someone who's 50-50 on what's going to happen. He does not go as someone who's confused about what's happening. All of the Gospels portray Jesus as someone who's confidently going to the cross, knowing the pain, but knowing that he will be sought safely in the end. He will not be abandoned to death and to Hades. He will not be allowed to see corruption. And it is through going to the cross, through dying, but coming back out of the grave, not seeing corruption, that he establishes or gets to know what the path of life is, which is eternal life with a resurrected body and full communion with the Father with no sin because it's been dealt with. In the presence of God, there is fullness of joy. At the right hand of God, which is where he rightfully sits, are where his pleasures lie forevermore. And so if this all applies to Christ, that's good. But what hope is there for us in that? Aside from saying that, yes, Psalm 16 prophesied about Christ and he was confirmed in the New Testament. Well, as people who are in Christ, the argument of the New Testament is that all of those who are in Christ are co-heirs with him in all of these blessings. The good news or the, the strange part is that we don't have to do all of what Psalm 16 says. We just have to confess and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of what he has accomplished, fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore, faithful obedience, is all already taken care of. So in complete contrast to the rabbinical teaching of this psalm, this is not something for us to live out so we can earn favor with God and an abundant life now. Rather, it is our sure and steadfast hope that Jesus, having met this criteria, is our only hope for fullness of joy. That there is no good that we can do for fullness of joy. That there is no hope that we have apart from Christ because as Peter argues, Christ fulfilled all of these things. This does not apply to David as good as he was. This does not apply to Moses as good as he was. This does not apply to any other Old Testament saint. This applies to Jesus Christ who fully satisfies this and is therefore our hope today. So when we read Psalm 16, it's not a moral code to live by, although there is much wisdom and much counsel to be gained from this. And as Christians, we ought to be imitators of Christ, living unto obedience with him. But our hope does not rely on us being obedient to these verses. Our hope lies in Christ who already was obedient to these verses. So we can dwell securely, rejoicing, knowing that our flesh will not see corruption, not because we've met the standard, but because Christ has met the standard. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word to us this evening. Lord, thank you for the wonderful counsel of your servant David, who sets before us an example and a model of all that Christ would accomplish one day. Lord, it is a profound mystery how prophecy works. It is a profound mystery how we today can look at these verses and look at verses elsewhere in Scripture and somehow put them together and see your beautiful tapestry of redemption as set forth in your word. You were planning from the beginning the redemption of your people. And we can rest secure in that, knowing that it was accomplished on the cross. And Lord, as the, the psalmist here writes, that you would preach by your spirits to each and every one of us in our hearts to either seal with assurance the promises laid out here, giving us confidence that on the day of judgment we would stand secure, or if there is no such confidence that you would further uh, cause discomfort among us, that you would cause us to seek your face, to seek your righteousness, 
and to not in any way rely on our own righteousness. Lord, would you testify inwardly to our hearts by your Spirit. We pray this all in your loving, holy, and precious name in whom we are to worship. Amen.